Welcome, friends, to Workplace Injury Prevention, a Fit for Work podcast where we are bringing the power of prevention to you. I am your host, Curtis Gopotic. I am joined by my co-host, Amber Brown. And today we are going to be talking with our one and own Forrest Richards. As you know, we have talked to Forrest in the past, but today he's going to go over 2019's OSHA top violations list. We're kind of jumping on the bandwagon of all of those top 20, top 10, top whatever of 2019. And Forrest is going to go over the list with us, some of the specific citations within those violations, and how it can help us improve our 2020. So with our kind of summing up the 2019 year and starting 2020, we thought it'd be appropriate to ask you, Forrest, what is the OSHA top 10 list about and how can companies use it to help them? That's a good question. OSHA publishes a list of the top 10 most frequently cited standards following inspections of work sites by federal OSHA. OSHA publishes the list to alert employers about commonly cited standards to allow them to take the appropriate steps to find and fix recognized hazards addressed in these and other standards before OSHA really ever shows up at the door. So they're kind of, you know, trying to telegraph, if you will, kind of what they're looking at or seeing out in the field. This list can be a good starting point to integrate OSHA's focus with your own site-specific compliance plan. Integrating this list can help you prioritize limited resources that you might have in terms of personnel or even time, which most of us lack, on relevant high-risk activities to prevent or at the very least control employee exposure and identify regulatory and liability losses you know, before they occur. So this isn't a list so much to say, just pay attention to these things. It just lets people know what's the most common issue that occurred to see if, hey, maybe that's something that you can pay attention to at your place of work as well. Absolutely. it's. I kind of use it more like a compass, just kind of like a barometer, what's going on out there. It's definitely not, like the OSHA log, it's definitely not your only source of information to look at. It's a good starting point. Now, when it comes to this top 10 list, can we just go over those and we'll kind of dive into them deeper as we go along? But uh, what do, were those 2019 citations? Sure. You know, obviously they primarily came out of the general industry and the construction industry. So the, the top one was fall protection general requirements under the construction industry. And that was about 7,000 total citations that they issued. The second one was HASCOM under the general industry requirements. And that resulted in about a little over 4,000 violations. Third one was scaffolding and construction, and that uh, represented about a little over 3,200 violations. Lockout, tagout, and general industry represented about 2,900, a little over 2,900 violations. Respiratory protection in the general industry, total violations on those was about 2,826. Ladders in construction, total violations on that represented about 2,700, a little over 2,700 citations that were issued. Powered industrial trucks in the general industry, and that represented a little over 2,300 violations. Fall protection training requirements in construction represented about 2,059 total citations that were issued. And then uh, number nine was machinery and machine guarding under the general requirements in the general industry. And that represented about 1,987 violations. And the final one, the 10th one was personal protective equipment for eye and face in the construction industry. And that represented about 1,630 violations. That's really interesting to me because I feel like we've gone through in our podcast this last year, we've talked about 
a lot of these things. But fall protection is is one I don't think we've delved into in this past year. So that's a very interesting. Is that a common one or is that a, a newcomer to the list? No, it's it's usually in there somewhere on the, the top 10. And it just depends on um, a lot of it. There's a whole lot of different reasons. And we'll maybe delve into this a little bit deeper in a few minutes. But um, there's a lot of reasons why they, they come on your site. And, and some of this is from their their regional emphasis programs or even their national emphasis programs. So OSHA will publish kind of these enforcement, hey, look at these industries and look for this specific regulation. So fall protection usually is is in there always on that top 10. So you're mentioning that, so these are the top 10 citations over 2019, or I guess safety regulations, correct? And then within each of these safety regulations, there are different citations that happen. Is that correct? Correct. Like a police officer, they have to be very specific. So uh, when they find something on your site, there has to be something in one of those regulations written in black and white so that you were allegedly have violated, you know, at the time that they saw it. So they, they can't just, I mean, they do have the general duty clause, which is a you know, probably a whole nother podcast, but, you know, to allow them to find, you know, stuff that there's not a regulation cited for. But as a general rule, they have to find something in black and white and put it down. So within each kind of subject, like fall protection or hazard communication, there will be specific paragraphs within that regulation that says, hey, you have to do this, you know, at least this way, you know, or at least this much. And then they have to put that in there on the violation or the citation. So within that fall protection, since it is one of the most common ones and and comes up year after year, what are the top two citations within fall protection? Sure, sure. The top two really came from, and again, this is under the construction industry regs, is the duty to have fall protection. So there's a clause in there that says, you know, employers, you have a duty to have fall protection. And it is OSHA's most frequently cited standard, as you mentioned, uh, specifically for fiscal year 2019. This is the ninth consecutive year it was uh, the number one on the agency's top 10 list. Wow, it does not like to be dethroned, does it? (laughs) No, no, absolutely not. And what that standard actually outlines is where fall protection is required, what specific systems are appropriate for different activities, the proper construction, how to install them, and the proper supervision of employees to prevent unprotected falls over six feet in height. Keep in mind that six-foot rule is really the construction industry. In the general industry, you have to do those things when they're unprotected at four feet in height. So the top two under you know the 2019 citations came really under the construction industry residential construction part and the unprotected sides and edges part. So the residential construction, just not protecting employees working six feet or more above lower levels by a guardrail, a safety net, or a personal fall arrest system, unless some other alternative in that standard says, hey, you know, this will work if it fits. And that right there represented about 61% of the total fall protection citations written in 2019. The second one underneath there was unprotected sides and edges. So this is employees walking and working on a horizontal or even a vertical surface without protection, you know, when they're six feet or or more above a lower level and they're not protected by a guardrail, a safety net, or a personal fall arrest system. And that's about 15% of the total citations that were written. So right there, if you can focus on just those two, you really got 70, 75, even 76% of everything that they may be kind of looking at. 
and and that's a that's a pretty big margin. I mean, that is definitely substantial. Now, the the next one, ha- hazard communication in the general industry. That's an interesting, very broad. What what does that mean? Hazard communication. Sure. This standard addresses chemical hazards, including chemicals produced and brought into the workplace. Additionally, the standard governs communication of those hazards to both permanent, temp, and contractor employees. So you really kind of have to have that dialed in, so to speak. And the top two citations under the general industry has come for 2019 really came under the written program part and then workplace labeling. This is kind of what everybody commonly refers to as low-hanging fruit. So under the written program, not having a current list of hazardous chemicals that are known, you know, they find a chemical out there on your floor, they go and and try to look at your list to see if it's on there or if you have a current safety data sheet and that it's accessible. You know, you don't have one or those two or three done and then they can they hit you for that. Uh, The second one under the HASCOM program is not stating in the written program the methods that the employer will use to inform employees of hazards of non-routine tasks. So cleaning different tanks, things that you don't do very often, once a month, once a quarter, semi-annually, annually, and the hazards associated with those chemicals and unlabeled pipes that are in their workplace. So we always tell folks, you know, how you how you do this is really based on kind of your your process, your flow, and how much you, you know, how when you inventory your chemicals really depends on how much you have to do and your resources, obviously. But trying to do it at least once a year at a time in the year that makes sense to you, going through all your departments. And maintenance is usually your hardest area because they like to, obviously, they are into every part of the facility. And, and so they may have things in there they only use every six months. And as a a prior maintenance professional in, in a lifetime, a long time ago, we tend to like to hoard things just on the off chance we never know when we're going to need it. I know that you have that screw or that one can of a special <laughs> type of oil. I understand. And I don't think it's just limited to maintenance professionals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's definitely some pathology there. You know, we just, we become hoarders at some point. So you really want to focus. That would be a key area you could focus on. And that represented about 36% of all violations under the general industry has come. And then workplace labeling obviously was was one, not having them labeled properly. And that represented about 26% of the citations that were written. And that's really, I can see why it's low hanging fruit. It's just having, keeping track of those, that information and making sure employees know where to get it and that they can understand it and have it available. So the next one is scaffolding. I can imagine that's pretty easy for people to overlook. So what's what are the top two citations under scaffolding? Top two under scaffolding came from fall protection and access, proper access. So under fall protection, not protecting employees uh, on a scaffold more than 10 feet. And again, this is in construction, so you have to really be specific about this, above a lower level from falling to that lower level. And this is this part of this uh, the regulation establishes the types of fall protection to be provided to employees on each type of scaffold or, you know, and, and again, for scaffold directors, the people that are assembling them and dismantling them. And that's about 31% of all violations under scaffolding. And the second one is, is not having proper access. So this would be like when the platforms are more than two feet above the ground. So the platform they're standing on, you know, with that scaffold, 
when it's more than two feet, you got to have proper access like portable ladders, a hook on ladder, something specific. They just can't use the side of the cross braces and the cross braces on a scaffold are basically the left and right sides that hold it all together. They can't scramble up or down that. And that was about 13% of all those violations. And you mentioned how, you know, the first part of the scaffolding has to do with fall protection. How does OSHA break those two apart? Is it just because it, it is a separate piece of equipment? You're actually on the scaffolding. That's why they they want to separate that. Or how I was kind of wondering how those two played together or how they keep them separate. Sure, sure. Uh, scaffolds are, are really complex. They are engineered systems and there's a lot of them out there. So, you know, if you're a scaffold uh, professional, you have to go to specific training for, you know, equipment specific or model specific types of scaffolds. You have to be able to prove that the person you're using, this is why a lot of companies contract that service out because it is, it is kind of a challenge to maintain that competency. So scaffolds are just a little different animal, but the main idea for most fall protection is just the guardrails, the safety nets, or personal fall arrest you know, systems, that's kind of your go-tos. And it's actually kind of common throughout all the standards to kind of look at those three first. All right. So let's move on to the lockout tagout. What, uh, what are the issues people seem to be having with lockout tagout? Yeah, lockout tagout is always on the, the top 10 in some form or fi- uh, uh, function. And that is for the 2019, it's in the general industry. And the top two underneath the lockout tagout is energy control procedures and training and communication. So for energy control procedures, these are your lockout tagout procedures, not having accurate procedures developed, documented, and utilized. So that's the operative. You got to have all three. You can have them developed. You can have them documented to where you can get to them and say, hey, this is great. But they have to be used for the control of those energy sources. Um, And that represented about 29% of all lockout tagout citations. And the second one, obviously, training and communication. Easy to say, tougher to do, uh, but not providing training to establish proficiency. And proficiency is the operative word. We see a lot of companies, you know, do this once a year with their authorized people. That would be the people locking and tagging things out. Traditionally, like your maintenance folks or maybe even your supervisors, depending uh, on their needs. And not establishing proficiency. They just kind of go through and they get their hands on it once a year, but they're really not documenting that they, they understood it. Now, the standard actually has some actual examples. So if you're looking for, hey, how do I prove my folks are proficient? You can review the 1910-147 lockout tagout standard, and there will be a part in there in one of the appendixes that will show you what you can do. And the training and communication part really represented about 19, 20% of all those citations. So if you're looking to make a, a big win, just focus on your energy control procedures and your training and making sure people understand how, when, where to use it. And rounding out the top five is respiratory protection. And as Curtis kind of mentioned earlier, you know, we did touch on a lot of these topics in our past podcast episodes, including the first one of, of 2020. So we're hitting the mark here. But what can you tell us as far as the top respiratory protection citations? Sure. The, uh, the top two came underneath the general requirements part, underneath the general industry respiratory protection standard and the written program part. So so let's take the general requirements, just not providing a medical evaluation. And that really is uh, in the appendix C of that standard. There's a, a, a questionnaire that you have folks fill out. You can have folks do a pulmonary functions test or a respirator fit test, depending on your medical provider's determination of what their needs are. 
most folks will start with just that Appendix C because it's just you fill out some questions, you have your local medical provider review it. If they see a problem on there, then maybe you can elevate that to a pulmonary functions test or a respirator fit test if they see something questionable on there. And that represented about 18% of the citations. And the second one was just the written program. You know, in any workplace where respirators are necessary to protect the employees, the employer has to establish and implement a program with worksite specific procedures. So the templated, you know, written programs really won't get you there here. That's a good place to start, but that program needs to reflect those changes in workplace conditions. And that's specifically like if they're using cartridge respirators, how long are they going to wear them? You know, when do they change them out? Where do they go to clean their stuff? How do they store it? So what that means to those employees there at that site. And that's about 16% of those total violations under the respiratory standard. Hey all, John Grove, CEO of Fit for Work. I wanted to take a minute to tell you about a one-of-the-kind subscription ergonomics program now available from Fit for Work. For just 500 bucks a month, you can get quarterly visits face-to-face from one of our Ergo team members who will perform physical demands analysis, Ergo risk assessments, and or deliver training of all different kinds. Then in between visits, you have on-demand access to the Ergo team for any questions that you might have. So rather than scoping out Ergo projects one at a time, now you get an in-person, year-round Ergo partner that provides you more deliverables than you would for a, a typical project price. It's typically a third of the price. It's an incredible value and is easy to learn more at wellworkforce.com. Click on connect with us. Now back to the interview. Of course, when you're talking about that first citation under the respiratory protection, and it was the the testing of the function, is that Mm -hmm. correct? Mm -hmm. Is that a pre-testing or post-exposure testing? When when is that supposed to be done? Yes, that's a great question. It has to be done before they wear the respirator. So it's you can't just have them go out to obviously Home Depot or Lowe's and get a respirator and just let them use it. So this medical evaluation must be done before they actually use the respirator or that you require them to use the respirator. I can see how an easy cut around would be to not do that and how this could end up on the top five. (laughs) For sure. It really does. Yeah. And it's tough. I've seen folks that look uh, healthy and that, you know, they look really fitter than me and you put them in a respirator and they start having problems with breathing. You know, they have maybe a a cardiopulmonary issue that's not addressed. So this is one that employers really want to get right. Definitely. I mean, when you're talking about breathing, uh, I don't remember everything from college, but I do remember that oxygen is important to the human body. (laughs) A little bit, just a little bit. Yes. Uh, (laughs) Let's move on to uh, ladders, which is number six. What what happened with ladders, violations, citations? Sure, sure. This standard covers the general requirements for all ladders. So if you're looking for, you know, more information about what I do, you know, what what to do with ladders, you really want to go to 1926-1053 and kind of start there. But keep in mind, under the general industry walking and working surfaces standard, there, there's some specifics there you may want to be mindful of. So the top two under ladders in construction came under the use paragraph, if you will. And that's when portable ladders are used to access an upper landing or a surface, not ensuring that the ladder side rails extend three feet above the upper landing surface to get that access or when such an extension ladder is not possible uh, due to the ladder's length, and this usually this is why we want to do JSAs and pre-task, you know, safety assessments before we do a job. Not having the ladder secured at the top, you know, with some kind of rigid support so that it won't slip or slide. The standard uses the word deflection, but 
simple terms, if it won't reach three feet above the surface that you're trying to get to, you got to make sure that it's lashed to something and secured and have a grasping device installed, such as a grab rail or something like that to assist them in the mount and dismount when they're transitioning over that, that surface that they're uh, trying to do. And in no case can the extension ladder deflect or slide or slip by itself. So you really, if it won't go three feet above, and it's not stable and secure at the right angle, then you have to lash it and you have to provide grab rails. That's about 59% of all the violations under the construction ladder standards. And then obviously using ladders for a purpose that they weren't designed for. So using a ladder like a scaffold, you know, putting it on five-gallon paint cans and walking across it, they're just not designed for that. I'm guilty. (laughs) Well, I was going to say, I am really glad the OSHA wasn't driving around when I was cleaning out my gutters this fall. And uh, (laughs) according to uh, this list, I'm probably pretty lucky I haven't made it to the top or the top one as far as falling. So I know. Thankfully, they can't just drive by and issue us citations. I think we're all guilty of that at some point. But it's also, it's so interesting how many things that I've learned, you know, while doing this podcast over this last year that can be translated to my house and to my home life. And so, you know, this isn't just for industrial settings. You know, these are definitely things that you can take a look at and and take home and make yourself safer where you live. Oh, absolutely. I mean, National Safety Council has been on record for years, you know, stating that a a large majority of, you know, injuries actually occur at home, you know, or outside the workplace. And we're bringing those things in. So teaching our employees about these safe habits and while they may be requirements at work, we can help keep them safe uh, if they'll implement it at home. You know, so it's a great point. Definitely. And bringing it home, uh, and we got the last four here, but number seven, the powered industrial trucks. Yeah, this is a tough one. It's it's kind of one of those things because they're everywhere. But the top two really came under uh, the safe operation uh, section of, of that standard. And again, this is general industry and refresher training and evaluation. So, under safe operation or operator training and safe operation, not ensuring that each powered industrial truck operator is competent to operate that truck safely. Well, that's a mouthful, but what does that really mean? That means that they've completed the training and the evaluation. So the training part is in the industry, we really talk about maybe formal instruction in the classroom, or you might have an online type of a program or a module to complete. That's that's really more the, the training part of the education and the evaluation, that's a hands-on evaluation that you document. That's about 26%. And you do have to have both of those under, under that standard. Uh, the second one would be refresher training. So this is when they have an incident or they're viewed as operating a forklift unsafely. They're carrying two loaded pallets when it's exceeding the weight limit of that truck. And we see that all the time. Not completing that refresher training, including that evaluation, and making sure that those operators have knowledge and skills that they need to operate that that vehicle safely or that piece of equipment safely. And that's about 15%. So right there, you're covering almost 40% of the things that they're looking for if you can get those top two down. And once again, it's mainly documentation. And then the employee sees that, is able to say and confirm that, yes, not only have you documented, but they can confirm that they went through it as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. We can do a great job of putting the word out and holding them accountable. But if we can't prove it, it didn't happen, as they say. For sure. For sure. Let's go to uh, number eight, fall protection or training 
I like that this is specifically the training as its own category. Yes, and this is kind of where you know some of the standards have very specific requirements for uh, the training uh, documentation or what they call the certification of the training. But uh, the top two came in the training program, not providing training for each employee that's exposed to those hazards and making sure that they understand how to install the system, take care of it, how to maintain it, how to use it. Most importantly, the limitations of that system. So guardrails, hey, you know, you can't hit this with a forklift. It's going to break. Your your harness is only going to hold this, and you can only use it for these specific work activities. And if they have to take a a system apart, you know, that represented about 67% of all the fall protection training in construction under those requirements, under the training program. The second one was the certification of training. And this is really tough because you got to have somebody there to kind of manage all of that. Not providing the written certification record that contains the name or other identity of the employee that was trained, the date that they were trained, the signature of the person who conducted the training, or the signature of the employer. And note that the employer, if the employer relies on training conducted by another employer, which happens a lot in construction and even in general industry, so you're getting a temp agency or something like that, you have some transient employees that, that come and go and, and they work and then they're gone and they come back. The certification record that you use internally should indicate the date that you determined that their prior training was adequate, not at the actual training date. So it gets a little complex and a little crazy sometimes, but that right there represented about 18% of, of the citations written. So if you can cover having your training program down and being able to prove it the right way, you're really covering about 70, 80% of everything. And that's a good margin for any investment. <laughs> Yeah. Is that 70 or 80? I'm just looking kind of back on all of these as you're talking about that. And and if you you know, are, are conducting that fall protect, protection training and going through the rigmarole of documenting it, I'm guessing that the training is going to cover ladders. It's going to cover scaffolding. It's going to cover the general fall protection, you know, the three earlier issues that we've already talked about. So you could really be saving yourself a lot by just covering in this this training section. Correct. And training is obviously not a one size fits all. And, you know, obviously most of the limitations are due to time, you know, money, production schedules and things. So breaking it down might be a way to go. You just have to be consistent about it or reserving the date, you know, the time to do it all in one shot and making sure that everybody understands it. Yeah. So number nine is machinery and machine guarding. And this, I believe, falls under those general requirements. Again, what are the top two citations here? Top two are types of guarding and point of operation guarding. So types of guarding, not having uh, the, you know, one or more of the methods of guarding to make sure that those employees are protected. And there's some specific hazards at a minimum you have to protect them from. And that's generally uh, point of operation hazards ingoing knit points. So anywhere where gears or rotating parts are, are rotating towards in, in on each other or towards each other, any rotating parts, flying chips and sparks. Some examples of, of proper guard, uh, guarding methods under the standards would be barrier guards to keep them away from it, two hand tripping devices to keep their hands out of it, electronic safety devices like light curtains. And that represented about 64% of all the total machine guarding Uh, citations written under general industry. And then the second one was point of operation guarding. And this is actually where the work is performed or being processed. And it has to be designed and constructed to prevent the operator from having any part of their body in the danger zone 
during the operating cycle. And that's about 26% of the total violations or citations written in 2019 under that standard. All right. And last but not least, uh, PPE for eye and face protection. One of our former topics that we discussed. What can you tell us about what occurred with citations there? Sure. The top two came from the general requirements under the general requirements section of that standard in construction, not ensuring each affected employee uses the appropriate eye and face protection when they're exposed to any kind of flying particles, molten metal, liquid chemicals, acids, caustic liquids, chemicals, gases, or vapors, or any kind of light radiation that they're dealing with. And that was about 96% of the, of the violations or citations written. And then the second one was not ensuring that each each employee uses that protection, specifically with side shields or detachable side protectors, the clip-on or the slide-on shields, meeting those requirements. Um, and, and that really was kind of only really about 3%. So, But looking at eyes and face, a lot of times we see people working with liquids and chemicals, and they're just using a face shield, you know, and that's it. We really recommend to comply with the intent of the standard. And this is bared out through many letters of interpretation over the years OSHA has come about that they use, you know, at the very minimum safety goggles with a face shield or safety glasses with a face shield when they're dealing with liquids and chemicals and things like that. Forrest, this has been a really great breakdown of those top 10 OSHA uh, violations of 2019. If people have more questions or want to dive deeper into this, what resources are available to them? Oh, sure. Uh, I like it simple and I like free even better. <laughs> so if you have an insurance representative, making sure that you have a, a really good relationship with them. So your insurance rep uh, may provide relevant compliance assessments and maybe even some training. You're already paying them the premium. So that may be a good resource, especially for small businesses to tap into that. Local safety associations, they usually provide a free one hour topic covered at monthly meetings. And it doesn't have to be your safety point of contact. This can be your supervisors that you that employers can allow them to go to these monthly meetings. And what that will do will help them enhance their network of, of professionals for ideas and support. Some good examples, uh, one of my personal favorites is the American Society of Safety Professionals. And you can find them at ASSB.org. Uh, Risk Management Society or RIMS, R-I-M-S, you can find them at RIMS.org. American Industrial Hygiene Association is a really great one, and obviously the National Safety Council. And then finally, if you really need to, you have specific needs or you have a broad depth of needs or a scope of needs, look at professional consulting firms like Fit for Work who can bring to bear multiple disciplines and solutions to your site-specific occupational and environmental health and safety needs. I think that's a wonderful way to, to end this interview, and I think that this has been extremely valuable. So looking forward to more of these uh, sum ups for the, the next year when 2020 closes. But knowing that I'm grateful that they publish this information, it's always sad because you know that each one of these citations, you know, either did affect or could have affected somebody. So getting this information out there is, is wonderful. Uh, we really appreciate your time and thank you so much. Absolutely. Thanks for the opportunity, uh, Curtis and Amber. Um, it's truly, it's a noble effort that you guys are, are putting together to spread the word out and help connect like-minded professionals with real world and inf information and solutions that are actually going to work and impact people's lives. So it's, it's just uh, really an honor to be a part of it. Thank you. 
Well, while the topic of citations might be a little bit of a downer, I actually had a lot of fun talking with Forrest about them. Uh, he's just so knowledgeable, and I really liked his insights that he provided a lot of good facts and information for everybody to benefit from. Yeah, and especially when he was talking about how you can dig further into this. I think he had some great insight there as well. But more so, I think that, you know, as I mentioned when we were talking about it and, and kind of joked about, I'm glad Osha didn't see me cleaning out my gutters this fall. You know, these things can really get you start thinking about how you can take this home and how you can be more safe when you are working around your home so that you can get to work. You know, it is, it's a two-way street. You know, we, we want people to be safe at work so they can get home and do the things that they, they love to do. But also, you know, most injuries do happen at home. And so if you can be more safe while you're there, then you can get to work and, and make your living. And, you know, it's that full circle of life there. For sure. And while not everybody is going to be getting fall protection for their ladders, uh, having that greater awareness of simple things you can do to make the ladder more secure and definitely a great benefit. So looking in perspective, a lot of things had to deal with also that paperwork. And while it's not the most exciting and can be easily put off, it really is that priority to take care of people and to have that program set up so they will have that information. So thank you for listening to this episode of Workplace Injury Prevention of Fit for Work podcast, where we are bringing the power of prevention to you. Please like and subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen. And please feel free to email us with any questions or comments to podcast at wellworkforce.com. And to get started preventing injuries, visit our website at wellworkforce.com. And remember, prevention improves lives. Thank you.